In early August, Netflix released Pray Away, a documentary that focuses on the ex-gay movement, the harm caused by conversion and reparative therapy, and the journeys of both survivors and leaders of the movement. We were approached with a chance to interview the film's director, Christine Stalakis. We were able to talk to her about her experience of filming the documentary and what she hopes the film will add to an ongoing conversation. While her responses to our questions don't necessarily reflect the views of questions from the Pew or the World Outspoken Network, we felt it was important to hear from the director herself as we discussed this heavy topic. After the interview, we, along with Ruth Nathaniel, discussed our own thoughts about the documentary and the subject it tackles. All that and more on this bonus episode of Questions from the Pew. Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're a forum for the discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. We're your hosts. I'm Reichert Zalametta. I'm Lucas Manning. Yeah, here we are. An interesting little bonus episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unexpected. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm. We're joined yeah, so- by a special guest today. Oh, yes. Very special. Ruth Nathaniel. Hello. <laughs> if you're a regular listener, you've heard her before. <laughs> yes. We should just call you the the third host here. I mean, you're on so often. Completing the trifecta. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <is> a... <laughs> she says, don't, don't associate me with this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, you know, basically, we just had the opportunity to, to interview uh, Christine, the director of Pray Away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'll just we'll play the interview for you, and then uh, we'll have some discussion following it of just some of our thoughts. Um, yeah, on the documentary and on on Christine's uh, you know take on it. Yeah, the definition of reparative or conversion therapy that's offered at the beginning of the film, at the opening of the documentary, is quote the attempt to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity by a religious leader, licensed counselor, or in peer support groups. Hopefully that provides a little bit of context of you know, what we're talking about uh, as we discuss the film with her. Yeah, so here's the interview. that was running late how are you all doing oh no problem doing pretty well how are you doing well yeah i'm doing well i'm sure it's been a busy day it seems like it has been a busy day i was just reflecting (laughs) on if i was speaking in full sentences with the reporter previously but i think i was um uh yeah well but you know no i'm 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 kidding around a little bit i'm i'm doing well i'm i'm ready to go (laughs) that's good good well yeah Uh, christine stalakis yeah thanks for joining us Yes, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I guess just to start off maybe with a, a general question, um, 
I guess, what are you hoping, you know, kind of the reaction will be from the different groups that are represented uh, in the documentary? Um, so specifically thinking, you know, kind of conservative Christian circles, uh, but then also uh, also like the survivors of the, the ex-gay movement. Um, mm. Yeah, I guess those two groups. Great question. I mean, I'd love to start by saying um, that this topic is very personal to me. Uh, I made this film because a dear family member went through conversion therapy after coming out as trans as a child, and he suffered from tremendous mental health challenges um, that I've learned are really common for people that go through this movement, um, from addiction to um, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations. Uh, and this is someone who also was my babysitter growing up and one of my best friends. And I share that because I've really um, seen in my family just the real pain that this movement causes. And my entire team is filled with people who have lived this issue in some kind of way of gay and trans conversion therapy survivors, of queer individuals who grew up evangelical, of queer people more generally. Um, and I just say all that before answering your great question because I really sit here with you all representing a group of people who come at this from various ways and share a goal of wanting to end the movement and speak um, very plainly, but hopefully powerfully about the harm that the conversion therapy movement causes. So in terms of all the groups that you mentioned, um, we really hope that what rises to the top in this film is that despite any good intention of a leader um, in this film uh, and outside of the film, that this movement undeniably causes pain and trauma. I don't think this is a political issue. Um, I don't think this is a religion versus secular issue. I think this is an issue um, that really is about abuse. It's about mental health. It's about making sure that children can live happy lives. So we try to craft the film to not put the Bible on trial, to not put religion on trial, but really to speak the truth of the movement's enduring harm um, plainly. We know that youth that go through conversion therapy are more than twice as likely to have attempted suicide. I mean, this is just the reality of this movement. Um, so I really hope that that um, shines true, especially, um, or shines through, I suppose, especially for more conservative audience members who might not think that this continues today, who might not think that this happens within their community, um, or who might even believe that change is possible. And not only is attempting to change to cis and to straight not possible, it's extremely harmful. So I would say that is ultimately the most important part of the film uh, for us in terms of communicating um, something to conservative and religious communities. Sure, sure. No, no, appreciate that. Uh, and then maybe... Maybe just one thing, just to get you talking, really, is uh, I guess what surprised you the most, you know, through the process of filming Pray Away? Um, yeah, any any change in thinking or, yeah, just any surprises, really? Um, well, one thing that really struck me, which the film um, shines a light on, is that the vast majority of people who run conversion therapy organizations are actually LGBTQ people themselves who claim that they themselves have changed and know um, and have the tools to teach others how to do the same. And for me, um, this film in a lot of ways is a study of hurt people hurting other people, of what it looks like to wield internalized homophobia and transphobia outwards. 
Um, and that surprised me because I experienced this movement by watching the inc indescribable pain of someone I cared about very deeply. Um, so to come across people's good intentions, to come across people's sincere belief that they had changed really surprised me. And I wanted to understand why would someone say that they've changed? Um, you know, why are people um, committing to hurting their other LGBTQ people? Uh, and what I found is that conversion therapy exists within a larger culture of homophobia and transphobia that persists in a number of American churches, I would say the majority of um, mainstream churches, um, that creates the perfect toxic combination for the conversion therapy movement to kind of arise, to come out, um, because people are taught to hate themselves and they're very motivated to believe that change is possible. Um, and then to believe that a feeling of belonging, of feeling recognized at their church is evidence that change is en route. Um, and that combined with conversion therapies, problematic legacy and disproven pseudo-psychology about why one is LGBTQ, that, that um, the view of being queer as a sickness in some way, that combined with a spiritual belief that you're sinning, it really, really harms people. Um, and you can understand why people um, would wanna believe that they themselves could change. And that's not to excuse leaders who lead this and cause harm. Um, that was something in the film we took pains to do is to speak very plainly about the harm. And we weave in the story of someone who primarily experienced this movement as a survivor, Julie Rogers, to really ground the film and the undeniable harm. But that, those good intentions did surprise me. Um, I actually think that's part of the reason the movement has so much fuel is that people often think they're doing the right thing, but they're really causing harm. Oh, thanks for that. Um, in the documentary, you focus on a few groups of people, right? So those who were hurt or wounded by this kind of conversion therapy, those who were in leadership in the ex-gay movement and, you know, since then have come to um, repudiate it. And then those who are still, for lack of a better word, stuck in the same kind of religious thinking. What um, were there other groups of people that you wish you could have maybe had more space or time to include or spotlight in the film? Hmm, what a great question. Um, one thing I think, uh, one, one thing I found in making this film was it was really important to show that fully affirming churches exist in our country. Churches where people can rest assured that not only will they be affirmed as being LGBTQ, but that church, their church will fight for LGBTQ people's rights and dignity. Um, so we show that in the film, that Julie Rogers is able to continue having her spiritual life be expressed through organized religion um, and in churches that don't require her to change for her to be a true part of the community. Um, but I will say, I think for some people continuing to be a part of organized religion after experiencing the ex-LGBTQ movement is a lot. And um, I do wish we could have also explored that for some people finding healing outside of this world doesn't look like spending time in a church. Um, it might look like finding a relationship to your higher power through joining a hiking group and experiencing, you know, nature as a conduit through which you might, you know, experience that relationship to a higher power. Um, you know, a number of other ways in which all of us 
find a sense of belonging and love and self-love through various types of community. So that was something um, I wish we could have also included in the film, but a film can't have all things. And we really wanted to show and, and kind of filmmakery language show and not tell that if you want to have a experience that includes Christianity, for example, and going to church on a Sunday, you can and be fully loved for who you are, exactly as you are as an LGBTQ person. So speaking, um, speaking of that, you're, um, the film kind of portrays, again, a, a, a modern iteration or a modern continuation of the ex-gay uh, movement or ex-gay ideology. Um, specifically, Jeffrey mm-hmm. McCall um, is an example of that kind of um, continuation. Um, and on August 5th, the Freedom March came out with a statement that basically um, condemns or rejects any kind of um, therapy, ministry, or counseling that forces anyone to yeah. change anything. Um, in the film, you draw a connection, though, between Exodus and the ex-gay movement uh, and, uh, and the Freedom March. So in light of that statement, can you tell us what, in your view, connects the harmful Exodus movement with um, for example, the Freedom March? Well, I will just say, just so you know, I haven't read that statement, um, so I don't want to comment on that sure. specifically. Sure. Um, uh, but I will say that for a lot of current groups who are a part of the ex-LGBTQ movement, there is language of love and acceptance, um, of diversity, of inclusion, um, that they use to explain what they are doing. But if you look at the underlying message of their work, it remains that to be LGBTQ is a sickness and a sin in some way. And the conversion conversion therapy as a practice has always been a movement, an entire belief system where that is the underlying message. And people look for healing in various ways, sometimes healing, quote unquote, not real healing, um, but look for a method for to change in various ways, be it sitting down one-on-one with a licensed clinician who still believes these disproven reasons why someone is LGBTQ. Um, but actually more often, even in past iterations of conversion therapy, it's sitting down with a pastor who acts as a pseudo counselor, um, who mixes in pseudo-psychology with spiritual counseling about how you can no longer be LGBTQ. Um, So something that we um, are often fighting with this film is that a lot of people actually have misconceptions about what conversion therapy is. People dream up it only to be electric shock therapy. Um, And that does happen very problematically, but much more often it looks like one-on-one counseling with your pastor a peer support group that's called a Bible study on homosexuality that meets every Tuesday night at your local church. That's like an AA style meeting um, uh, where this idea of being LGBTQ as a sickness and a sin gets passed around in a peer-based model. It looks like going to something like the Freedom March and being told through personal stories that they overcame homosexuality in some way um, over and over again. So I really respect that Jeffrey agreed to be a part of our film. I really respect that the Freedom March um, as a group has really good intentions and thinks that they are helping LGBTQ people. But if an LGBTQ person can't exist within an organization without attempting 
to not be LGBTQ, that is a form of conversion therapy. But, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. So that's why we highlighted um, the group that we did in our film. Thanks Great. for that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's helpful. Um, yeah, one of the big things that just our podcast uh, spends a lot of time talking about is kind of just kind of the issue of race in America. Our listeners are, are really interested in that, and so are we. Um, uh, and so I guess, you know, changing gears a little bit to the idea of this kind of like intersectionality of issues. Um, did your research, um, you know, into the ex-gay uh, movement or exodus specifically, um, did it have any any interaction with, you know, some of the issues that are going on um, just with race in America? And there's obviously a plethora of issues. Uh, but then also the way that the church engages or also just doesn't engage, you know, with, mm. with that issue. Great question. So, you know, the approach in our film was to really try to examine how leadership and power works in this world, uh, in the ex-LGBTQ world, um, with the understanding that we would ground the film in the undeniable harm of the movement through the story of a survivor, um, but also that we wanted to shine a light on the fact that this is a movement of hurt people hurting other people. So as long as a larger culture of homophobia and transphobia continues, some version of this will continue. So I say all that because um, to shine a light on leadership in this world meant shining a light on the mechanisms of power uh, uh, within what became the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, which was Exodus International. Um, and the film largely tracks the rise and fall of Exodus International. And the leadership of Exodus International, as is true in leadership both within evangelical Christianity, you know, my upbringing um, as a uh, Catholic within our, you know, larger world of leadership, it's mostly white and male, frankly. So I just want to acknowledge that that's something we tried to capture in the film is that that <clears throat> remains true in terms of the leaders that you see in this world. You see how, and then, you know, through the lens of race, the whiteness of the evangelical church um, in terms of power structures gets reflected in the leaders in this world. So in the film, a way that we also try to highlight this is through the story of Yvette Cantu Schneider, who talks about the fact that she um, was partly hired by the Family Research Council because in her words, she had a Hispanic last name because in the language of today that she might reach a Latinx population with her story of change. Um, that, you know, someone that maybe isn't, um, that didn't have that last name wouldn't be able to reach. So you can see how identity is weaponized to put out these problematic messages of change. Um, there might be a language of inclusion in there that we wanted to have a more diverse leadership body at the Family Research Council, but what does that actually manifest in? Well, it manifests in reaching more and more vulnerable people with this message of change. Um, and what, something else we tried to document is that notably the Freedom March is much more racially and ethnically diverse than, um, than the conversion therapy movement of the past. And again, I think that's partly the result of in more inclusive language um, around race and ethnicity that they use in order to make people feel welcome. And still to be LGBTQ in that space um, is not something that's fully accepted. That's still happening within that world, um, even within the language of diversity and inclusion. So this is a way in which these messages of being LGBTQ is a sickness and a sin 
are getting sent out to populations that have overlapping forms of oppression um, that is harming people. So that's stuff that we really try to capture in the film um, and in the media um, around the film and also in terms of our outreach and community engagement plans and materials. It's something that we're talking about even more, um, the way in which race intersects with homophobia and transphobia more generally. So it's something that we try to capture in, a film, in the film in a show not tell kind of way. And we hope that the conversation gets expanded um, and deepened in our impact uh, work and in media surrounding the film. Sure. No, that's good. Yeah, I think um, kind of just riffing off that a little bit, you know, the white kind of evangelical church in America is very like individualist focused. So it's like individual mm. piety, which uh, and you included a lot of the kind of the the cornerstones of that thinking, like Jerry Falwell, um, somebody else I forget exactly, but Dobson. Uh, but you included some of those. Oh, go ahead. James Dobson was a yeah, yeah. James Dobson. Right. Focus on the family. Um and that's what part of what Questions from the Pew does uh, with our partner World Outspoken is, uh, I guess, pushing a less individualistic faith that's more mm. kind of rooted in, one, the biblical tradition, which is more of a collectivist, was raised, was written out of collectivist cultures. Um, and so I guess, yes, maybe if you could speak a little bit to that. Um, one, I mean, you already did speak about race a little bit, but also this issue of purity culture. Um, I don't mm. know if you're familiar with that which maybe you're not. Uh, but if you are, or in for our listeners, what did you say? Uh, basically purity culture, mm-hmm. which is basically uh, basically just a way of, of teaching a sexual ethic that gained steam around the time that, that this was gaining steam. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if, um, yeah, if you could just speak to maybe that intersection as well, you know, since we're on the theme of intersectionality. You know, I mean, to be very honest, I was raised Catholic and I have my own feelings about purity culture uh, and the way in which women's sexuality is viewed in the Catholic church. Um, So I don't know if I could speak probably as broadly or deeply as I'd actually be curious to hear your take on the connection between purity culture (laughs) and what you saw in the film. So just to say that out loud, but one thing that I will say is that um, a common, um, a common uh, quote unquote treatment in this world uh, in terms of making someone no longer ex- or part- no longer LGBTQ, uh, which of course is not only disproven, but it's harmful, is to basically enforce gender norms, to say women, be submissive to men when you go on a date. Um, men, be aggressive towards women when you go on a date. Um, you know, fill in the blank for all these ways in which um, an essentialized view of who women are and who men are um, gets reported as some sort of advice for change. And within that, you see really reductive points of view on sex, sexuality, sexual expression, what's okay to happen before and after marriage, what kinds of sex are, is okay, what kind of sex isn't okay. Um, that has a relationship to purity culture, to sexism, um, so on and so forth. So I can say that. Um, so, for example, in our film, we talk about the fact that at Exodus conferences, women would be uh, ushered into makeup classes, you know, as though this was going to create this domino effect to change their sexuality, as if wearing makeup is essentially about being a woman, which is essentially about being straight. I mean, these are very reductive ways to think about human sexuality. 
um, that again, are not only disproven, but are harmful when pushed um, within that message of sickness and the sun. But I'm curious to hear your take. May I ask you what your thoughts are so I can learn? I guess there's just, there's a lot to say about it. Um, I would say, suffice it to say, the way that we're, uh, or I guess the paradigm with, with which we kind of see our Christianity is in more of a, I guess, a biblically informed, I would say. Uh, we're both like biblical studies, uh, I guess, graduates now. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the, just the white Christianity that's developed in America is solely focused on personal piety. Uh, a lot of it's like the sexual ethic, like you were talking about, um, which the Bible does have some things to say. That's, there's no doubt. But the definitely the focus um, and the, the thrust of the biblical narrative is much more communal uh, and, you know, collectively focused. Um, mm. So that's where a lot of these things are, like you said, the gender norms are more culturally informed. Uh, I mm. mean, that's mm -hmm. wearing makeup is entirely culturally informed. It has no, right. you know, there's no ob objectivity to that. Um, so, right. yeah, that's that's just to suffice it to say we, we're developing a different paradigm, essentially, um, which I think is more faithful to the biblical text. Um, anyway. I think that's really interesting. And also I am constantly learning with this film and I just learned something there and that makes a lot of sense. And I think sure. something I uh, came to conclude in making this film is, and I said this in different words before, but it's really true that as long as a larger culture of homophobia and transphobia exists, you will see manifest out of it um, in the world of religion. Um, something like the ex-LGBTQ movement outside the world of religion, something like anti-trans bills being passed in, you know, like with a frequency, frequency we've never seen before. So there's a way in which I think you're right that people um, point to their church as the source of like, hmm, what do I want to say there? I think you're right that people take what they're, take homophobia and transphobia to be from the Bible in a way that is reductive and having spent time with people who care a lot about what the Bible says, um, I don't even think accurate. Uh, so I hear you what you're saying. Great. Oh, thanks for that. I, I think maybe just yes. one more question, just to respect your time, um, kind of a two-part question to kind of bring our discussion to a close. How do you think, you know, coming from the hurt that has been caused by the ex-gay movement and the church leadership involved in it. How do you think Christians who regret supporting and promoting or being involved in movements like the ex-gay movement restore their relationship or a relationship to the LGBTQ movement? And, you know, what message, part two of the question here, what message are you hoping that this documentary communicates to the Christian church in the United States? Hmm. It's a great big question. Uh, I love it. Um, for better or worse, I know this to be true, that homophobia and transphobia have been such a persistent part of church culture in the United States and abroad that for, he for healing to happen, we need churches and church leaders to actively come out against conversion therapy, against the LGBTQ movement, and come out fighting for LGBTQ rights and dignity. Because I think without that clarity without that forwardness, a kid in your congregation is going to get the message somewhere that being trans or being gay is a sickness or a sin. And that message is the damaging 
is the beginning of the damage, you know? And what happens after is people finding organizations that say change is possible, finding that licensed clinician that says, I have the recipe for change, et cetera. But if churches can really own that they have the power to come out fighting for LGBTQ rights and dignity, to help avoid, to help people avoid the mental health stuff that my uncle went through that was so horrible. I mean, I think if people could see themselves not as um, kind of passive onlookers, but as active participants in either pushing forward the narrative of the conversion therapy movement or helping to stop that narrative and stop the movement um, because of their work to stop the narrative, I, I, I think that we would all be better for it. So that's what I really hope is that um, people in various types of faith communities see that that larger culture of homophobia and transphobia is really the thing that stokes the fire of the conversion therapy movement and they have the power to send a different message. That's great. Thanks, well, Christine. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate, we, uh, honestly. Yeah, appreciate the, the time that you took. Yeah, enlightening to conversation. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I hope, again, that I was speaking in complete sentences. You were. Uh, after <laughs> a wonderful long day of press, but thank you for all your really great questions. I so, so appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks no problem, again. Christine. Take care. Okay. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Yeah, that um, that that interview, that conversation with Christine Stalakis was pretty uh, pretty interesting. It was helpful, at least for me, in terms of thinking through, um, yeah, thinking through the the film, my thoughts, emotions that yeah. kind of brought up. Yeah, for that sure. Were brought up I definitely film. feel like it at least provides context of where she's coming from, or like what perspective, you know, more of like a sociological take on the whole thing. Uh, whereas, you know, questions from the pew, obviously we approach things, you know, with kind of a Christian perspective in mind, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether or not the listener holds that or not. Uh, but that's, that's the lens that we're seeing things, but you know, obviously she is not, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, or if she is, it's, you know, it's loosely, uh, she, you know, she mentions he was, uh, brought up in the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's fair. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, really interesting. So yeah, I'm. At least interested to hear everyone's takes here. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all, I mean, th- all three of us have seen it. We're going to try not to put out, put out too many spoilers. Sure. Um, I think, I think if, I think it's useful, it's, it's helpful to watch even again, if for sure, w- whether or not you agree with the conclusions it draws sure. or the premises of, you know, which undergird it. Right. Um, it's helpful uh, for, yeah. for Christians who are wanting to engage with culture um, in a meaningful and faithful way. Um, we can't shy away from these kinds Agreed. of, as we say, tough issues. Yeah. I would say if you want to just go watch it and pause and come on back to the conversation, feel free. Um, I think one thing that I feel like we can all kind of agree about the documentary is that like, obviously there's some damage that's been done. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's kind of un- indisputable. Um, and yeah, I guess the, yeah, the question is, you know, what are the reasons that that happened uh, or is still happening even? 
Um, yeah, and just, yeah, the whole issue is really interesting. But I think, at least as a baseline, we can agree, damage was definitely done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, by the particular, um, yeah, I guess, methodology employed right. by, yeah, the Christian leaders who... For sure. Who... I, here's the thing. I, I saw it, I see it, I guess, as as very reactionary to the cultural changes that were happening in the cultural events, right? And so um, it was a very, almost a knee-jerk reaction, I'd say. Um, And it had a theological foundation, yes, um, but the specific way of applying uh, and, and, yeah, applying the theological foundation um, ended up doing a lot more harm than than good sure and i think that's one of the strengths of the film right it brought it it highlighted that um in a way that i think forces a lot of christians to one um repent for maybe how we treated our lgbtq you know neighbors in the past and how we viewed them as human beings right yeah and and then beyond that even it kind of forces us to assess how we are applying our theology mm-hmm. right because in in a lot of areas the, the bible you know is is on is bible doesn't um offer you know step one two Specifics. three and four of how right. to right. how to live out this um, well that's other where... places it does but but sure. in these areas we sometimes mess up right well that's where i feel like when when damage starts being done like by the church or like by specific you know, implementation of theology. I feel like that's when it's like, okay, then there's there's an issue, I think, like with some sort of, in some way, there's an issue with the theology or, you know, its implementation or that kind of a thing, which that's what I was trying to get at in the interview uh, when I was talking to her there near the end of, you know, kind of the the American church's more individualistic paradigm for, for Christianity. So like the, the main storyline of the Bible is like, your personal salvation from hell in the afterlife and like what you can do right now is like this personal piety, you know, holy, you know, you know, live this, this certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think that that's, you know, the individual is certainly present as far as like, you know, making decisions and that kind of, obviously I think, I think the ancient mind would understand the difference between the community and the individual just as we would. Sure. But then also like the purpose or like the Bible's main narrative and message is more so along the lines of like the community rather than like individual salvation and that kind of thing. Mm. So that's where I think, and I think, I'm not sure if I said this in the interview, but I guess when we do focus on Christianity as this individualistic, you know, personal piety type of, I guess, religion, that's when I think like we start to go overboard with like, I don't know, I guess like the, the lengths that we'll go to try to like make everyone conform to like our ideal personal, you know, piety life, you know what I'm saying? Or pious Mm -hmm. life, I should say. So anyway, so I mean, I think that's a big, uh, I guess just a big contributor to this. I think this whole conversation. Ruth, maybe, maybe you can tell us your thoughts about because they they obviously talked a lot about the the psychological and mm-hmm. um, emotional harm caused by the X game movement, yeah. um, specifically Exodus. Maybe yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts? Maybe about what uh, about that? 
Yeah. So I'm not sure if they kind of outlined too much about the history on the psychology side of, you know, where all this is coming from, but just like briefly, I believe it was in the seventies, maybe like early seventies that the American Psychological Association removed um, homosexuality in air quotes um, from the DSM, um, which is basically the manual that we use to diagnose psychological and mental um, issues um, or mental health problems. Um, and so you see this kind of shift go from, okay, this was once seen as something that we need to correct or treat. And now we're looking at it more from a perspective of, no, we need to start taking into consideration how someone's sexuality and whether they're straight or bi or whatever have you, that this is a part of their identity. And um, when we start to actually incorporate someone's sexuality into their identity, that's when they can present as their full selves. And this is no longer an area of someone's life that needs to be corrected or fixed um, because there is no real quote deviation from a norm anymore. Um, at least that's mm. kind of how the APA has kind of gone about like correcting that um, in the DSM-5 and so forth. Um, obviously, you know, there is something to be said about how when someone has to like hide or they feel shame about a part of their identity, it can start creating a lot of dissonance internally. And that can present itself in a variety of ways. You know, there's depression or suicidality or self-esteem issues, anxiety. Um, and I'm sure there are more that I could, you know, come up with, but those are some main ones that kind of come out when someone is feeling shame or feeling like they have to correct something as intimate as their sexuality. Um, so I think like the hope is that, you know, moving forward, people can embrace who they are like fully and that takes into account their sexuality. And so issues like depression or anxiety that stem from, you know, this former way of thinking um, can be reduced. Obviously, um, you know, the documentary, I, I, I didn't feel like they talked too much with the psychologist that they had kind of come on um, briefly, mm -hmm. really. Um, so I would have loved to have heard more um, from him, but that's just kind of where my mind was at. I was like, okay, you know, it was taken out in the 70s out of the, out of the DSM. Um, so I was also trying to think like, what are the parallels socially that were happening in the 70s? Uh, sure. And maybe you guys have more info on that, but it does, I mean, here's the thing, the DSM does take into account what is happening culturally, um, mm -hmm. you know, as it's sure. um, published year after year. It might not be published year after year, but as it gets updated every so often. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we even heard, you know, speaking like culturally, I, I'm kind of taking another point, but, you know, we said, you guys were talking about how it seemed like a knee jerk reaction, right? And um, as we will find out in the documentary, um, people were dying of HIV um, in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. um, they were really affected and that created a lot of fear. And I, I really had a lot of empathy um, for some of the people who basically like saw the devastation in their community, saw friends dying, saw family members dying. 
um, who are part of the LGBTQ community and then took a hard turn and tried to go into a wholly different direction, maybe out of literal fear. Um, they didn't want to see people dying anymore. They didn't want to be someone who was um, affected by HIV, perhaps. Um, mm. And, you know, while it was, I, we can all agree, it was an imperfect response, um, I couldn't help but like feel that fear throughout the documentary. Um, mm. And so, yeah, yeah, those are some of my initial thoughts. Mm. For sure. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point with just the cultural milieu that this ex-gay movement um, came to prominence in, right? So you've got the AIDS crisis, like you mentioned already, and then you've got also in the midst of all that, the rise of the moral majority, the religious right uh, as a political, uh, as a lobbying body, as a political body. Um, and so a, a lot of that just kind of converged, coincided into this perfect storm that, um, yeah, that essentially provided a, I guess, a petri dish from which this harmful movement um, grew. And again, this isn't a, a moral judgment on homosexuality or, or you know, one's um, thoughts on on it, but just the, yeah, just as a as a practice of trying to force someone um, into something else um, or. Th- take on a different way of thinking or identification um, on a religious basis, especially is, is, is problematic um, because um, for one, the, the, the Bible doesn't put forth a, um, as an alternative to, to homosexuality, heterosexuality um, in terms of like, that should be the goal, get someone from, being a homosexual to a heterosexual, sure. which is essentially the the foundation of a lot of the ex-gay movements and the organizations that came about. And that's, um, yeah, and, and that's why you see a lot of the, I mean, they, they cite a lot of stuff with um, just the um, physical manifestations of quote-unquote femininity and masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Playing football or putting on sure. makeup, and they talk a little bit about that. Um but yeah. yeah, but all yeah, a lot of that is just arising from the culture, not so right. much a a biblical right. Sort well, of those standpoint. things are just culturally located like markers. You know what I'm saying? That I mean, if we're saying that if you're a a you know a woman or whatever, you need to be doing makeup and that kind of a thing. Like that's not biblical. That's just like cultural. You know what I'm saying? And so that's where I think like I don't know. I guess it's to me, it's kind of like what, you know, Jesus is saying to like the religious leaders of his day. It's like, like a lot of this is just like man's rules that you've like added on top of it, mm-hmm. which like, yeah. you know, not to say that you shouldn't think deeply and how, how do we apply mm-hmm. biblical truths and that kind of a thing. But also it's, how do we get away from creating essentially our own canon beyond the canon, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is tough. Yeah. Cause it elevated heterosexuality as the, the, the ideal and the goal of, you know, to use Christian terms, the goal of sanctification, mm-hmm. right? That's, um, that's why you see folks like, um, John Pock, who became the, the figurehead, uh, in, in many ways of the movement, because he was, uh, an exemplar of what it looks like to, to, you know, to be transformed, um, from a gay man to 
uh, not just someone who doesn't act on, um, you know, homosexual feelings or emotions, but someone who actually doesn't find the same sex attractive anymore, but instead finds the opposite sex attractive and that he's got a family now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it painted that as the, the ultimate goal sure. where we don't see that biblically even, right? So sure. Paul, who wrote more than half the New Testament, he was never married. And he right. talks about being called to singleness, and right. um, um, and even, I mean, a lot of Christian thinkers as well um, talk about the idolization of um, of heterosexuality and um, and the family as yeah. the ultimate goal, uh, where um, where the Bible, yeah, explicitly maybe you know condones and condemns certain sexual practices, but it doesn't say in order to be a good Christian, you need to be this, you need to right. be married to someone from your opposite sex, not having any, you know, other kind of sexual attractions, all those things that, again, are tackled by the by the film. Right, right. It is interesting. I mean, one thing I did want to bring up is, and we like sort of touched it uh, in the interview, but it's just like the fact that a lot of this is located, uh, not just specifically with the American church, but like, like pretty exclusively within the white American church, at least everyone they were talking to, um, you know, the leaders and I guess some of like the main victims that they highlighted, I guess I would say, I feel like a lot of this stuff arises or, you know, the, the conversion therapy and the trying to get people to, you know, hold a certain personally pious lifestyle, I think arises because, you know, the white churches like individualism and, and that focus. So that's where, once again, I, I think a better paradigm of of the Christian faith alleviates. I guess I think it, it could have alleviated a lot of the harm that, that was like perpetuated in this pursuit. Here's the thing though, right? So in in the midst of all this, we can't forget that this film was made with very different, I mean, we mentioned it already, very different theological underpinnings sure. um, from, from ours. Um, and that's actually one of, I think, you know, if I can point out a, a few weaknesses maybe or, or drawbacks of the, of the documentary, one is that it doesn't, it really doesn't dive into the idea of, of Christian sanctification. The fact that, that Christ, when you submit your life to him, does change you in certain areas, sure. right? And one of those areas is, can be your sexuality. Sure. Um, and that goes for both like, homosexuality yeah. and heterosexuality. Right. I feel like a lot of people in America, like, feel some sort of shame related to their sexuality, whether they're straight or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. LGBTQ yeah. plus, all those things. Yeah. Well, it, it paints, so the the premise of the film is that certain people thought and taught that change was possible and acted upon that in harmful ways. Mm-hmm. And we can agree that it was harmful in the, the way that they sure. moved on that belief, right? Um, but it moved beyond criticizing the methodology and criticized the belief itself. So as Christians, we do believe that that change is possible, that Christ is the, the agent of change in, in, our, in our lives, right? So... Sure. Um, so change is possible, but that's something that's implicitly condemned by the film. 
that if you think that change is possible, sure. um, any change is possible, that, that that is some form of coercion or wrong thinking, um, right? So that's why you get, um, uh, what's his name, Jeffrey McCall at the mm. end. He's painted as some sort of continuation of that same uh, the same you know atrocities of the the that came out of the ex gay movement where it's it's very different right so it's his his message is that Christ has changed me and your story might look different from mine this but this is what he did in my life i'm not forcing the change on you i'm just telling you if this is what you want then it can happen sure. and that's a very biblical idea right and even the bible doesn't talk about you know, God changing your, you know, homosexual attractions into heterosexual attractions. It doesn't say that. It doesn't put that forth as a as a way of Christian sanctification. But sure. what it does put forth is a submission of of your identity, of your your wants and your desires under the lordship of Christ. How that change pans out is going to look different sure. for each person, right? And so. Sure. Um, I think that that's that's one thing that was that troubled me a little bit with the film is that, um, yeah, it it uh, it it put a very wide blanket over any approach that differs with full um, acceptance and affirmation of for sure um, the LGBTQ. Um, yeah, movement or community. Well, once again, I I feel like that's a reflection of the wider culture, which is like. You have to accept me, like for who I am, and like, and like I'm not going to change. I mean, theologically speaking, it's it again. That's the underlying theological belief, right? That 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 change is possible through Christ. But then, from there, your point of application can deviate into something that's faithful and and biblically grounded, or harmful, like the ex-gay movement, right? So you sure. can coerce. Uh, and manipulate and degrade someone's identity in an attempt to um, to create that change, or you can, as I think um, is biblically warranted and biblically taught, you know, leave the the conviction to the Holy Spirit. You can present the person with what has been revealed in Scripture, but at the end of the day, it's their decision to either submit that area of their life to to Christ or not. For but sure. that work of conviction isn't going to come. It, that change is not going to be, um, uh, isn't going to be brought about by us or our actions, or shouldn't. For sure. Um, for sure. That should well, be brought about by the Holy Spirit, because that's what's right. going to bring true healing. Anything other than that is going to bring the harm that we saw. Right. That came out of the X gay movement. Yeah, agreed. And that's where I feel like the church can really benefit from, like re taking another look at. Or reevaluating, you know, its treatment and or like the way it interacts with uh, people who identify as LGBTQ. Because um, I mean, I mean, there's literal like examples even in my past, like of churches that I've attended, um, where like you know, like church discipline happens towards like an LGBTQ plus like young person, and that's like a horrible thing, you know, that's just super damaging. And so that's where it's like there is a way just to interact with this that's better. And that's why I think that's why I think church people should uh, or people who are committed to the church should like watch this and be like, oh, okay, this is obviously 
causing a lot of harm. So we need to like reevaluate. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're, yeah, changing our whole stance or like, you know, whatever. But it's just reevaluating how we're actually, you know, how we're actually treating uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community. I think it would just be helpful if we could provide like, you know, what are, what aren't we saying and what are we saying? So we're not, we're not, um, we're not saying that in order to be a loving Christian or even a loving person, you need to, um, uh, affirm someone's sexual identity. Uh, kind of like what Christine Stalaka said, and, and we're we're not affirming that um, that if you you know don't affirm someone in their sexual identity, that you are harming them um, in a way that the sure. you know the folks in the leadership in the ex gay movement were. Um, sure. Am I summing that up correctly? What you were talking about yeah. earlier, at least. Yeah, I would say. I guess. Yeah. One other point is. I think like a lot of like the tension around this issue comes with like the way that it's been politicized um, in the sense of like, like the gay marriage rulings. And I think they mentioned that in the documentary, like the, mm-hmm. was it, I don't forget what year, but it was in the mid two thousands of like when they like outlawed uh, gay marriage or whatever. Proposition eight, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Proposition eight. That's right. And then under Obama, I do remember when it was, when it was legalized under yeah. Obama, mm-hmm. I forget exactly what year that was, but um was and I guess to me, something like yeah, that. that sounds about right. I guess to me, just as an American, I feel like it's like marry whoever you want. It's America, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's where, you know, I think there's this notion of like this this battle for like the soul of America. And I think the church just needs to give that up. Like that's not we're actually not here to try to win America. Like we're actually here to like suffer and sacrifice for like our enemies. <laughs> like that's what we're here for. And so I guess, I guess to me, like the th- one thing that I feel completely comfortable condemning is like political action, like against the LGBTQ, I guess like uh, agenda or whatever. I've like nobody, at least as far as I've seen, no one is trying to like, you know, become higher than straight people or like, you know, have more rights or whatever. Basically, it's just people who want to get married to other people, consenting adults. And to me, in the realm of like politics and like the public public arena, it's like just do that. I mean, it's not we're not a theocracy here. We're a democracy who apparently has freedom of religion. That's supposedly a part of our whole nation. So if that's the case, then like we we can't hold people who are not Christians to like a Christian standard. Uh, mm. 
a certain Christian standard. So that's where I feel like perfectly comfortable, like denouncing that as a Christian and as an American. I feel like a lot of this goes back to legislating morality. Um, And that stems from the idea that America is supposed to be um, this Christian nation that, you know, espouses or governs in a way that's reflective of the Bible. And I can agree with some of that, right? Because there are Sure. There are some aspects of governance where we can agree on that that, that is moral or that is immoral. Sure. Um, but when it comes to uh, legislating a particularly Christian um, lifestyle, uh, lifestyle or yeah. Uh, yeah, legislating from a very Christian theological stance, sure. um, that's where I think I want to call the church to remember that in very... In, in a lot of ways, we are much more similar to the New Testament church uh, because they were not in a position of influence, right? And so what the, uh, I mean, you know, what the New Testament writers were calling Christian, early Christian communities to was to live differently from the world, from the position of influence and cultural uh, influence. Um, not so much to, to change it or to... Uh, to overthrow what they uh, what was very clearly immoral um, in in terms of you know what the New Testament writers were saying, but uh, their call was to live differently, um, and so that's why you we talked about it in in the episode on Paul. But um, I, I I think if we remember that, it will do a lot in terms of the way we interact publicly in the public sphere in the political sphere. Uh, with communities who don't see the way that we do or don't believe the way that we do. Case in point, the LGBTQ community. Sure. Um, and I think if we can we can do that, I think it'll help us navigate a little bit more graciously and lovingly mm. um, and in a way that is uh, amicable, mm. hopefully, um, in these divisive times. Sure. Well, I do think it's like your point about us being more like the early church in the sense of influence. Um, I mean, I do think that's right on because obviously like in the seventies, eighties, even nineties, like the church had a much, much more sway in like the public uh, arena. Not to say that it doesn't have any now because it definitely does, but it's a lot less. And I don't know if it's like the majority anymore. Um, So that's where I feel like, I don't know a lot of this comes from like just the power that the church was able to wield. Uh, Mm -hmm. whereas now it's, there's like less power as far as like swaying public opinion and that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's right. I mean, I do hope that we start to focus more on, yeah, the, the things that you were saying, um, of like living a certain way, you know, which like, yeah, the new Testament authors called us to, Mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, political lobbying and, and that kind of a thing. Ruth, maybe as, yeah, again, as we kind of close this out, maybe you can tell us just from, I'll, I'll preface this question, right? Because we, as Christians, our theology oftentimes, I'm not saying, I'm going to, I might, I might land in some hot water for this, no. but 
Uh, I'm not saying that theology, our theology, or the Bible shouldn't undergird or flow through everything that we say, think, or do. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but but sometimes we use our theology, we use the Bible as a cover up for just striking people down regardless mm. right and so that's where the whole idea of the you know quote unquote good intentions sure come with you know awful application mm. right so in our attempt to live out the christian ideal of of loving one's neighbor and loving god and trying to point to god and then the, and you know and the the biblical ideal while at the same time taking into account the possible damage and the hurt in the way we interact with, you know, let's say specifically in this case, the LGBTQ community. Can you think of, I know off the top of your head, but um, certain ways that Christians can tactfully walk that line where they're not, um, they're not laying down their theological or biblical beliefs in pursuit of love, but they're also not, rejecting love in pursuit of theological or biblical truth yeah i think just like my gut reaction to that um question is definitely like it's personally uh like this is how i would go about it i would just say like shortly and sweetly like love people and let god do the rest um which i think is it's a simple like directive but it comes with a lot of responsibility because it requires kind of this like we've talked about this at our church um recently kind of like a quote-unquote uncaring um attitude it's like i love you and i do care for you but i am not going to put your whole like life trajectory on my shoulders um because ultimately i am not god yeah, you're not trying to force someone into an agenda. You're yeah. just like loving them exactly. and seeing what happens. Exactly. I don't have an agenda when I'm coming to you. I'm here to honor the imago day that you that you have um, intrinsically in you. Um, I respect your humanity. I respect what you bring to the table as a whole human. Um, and that's the that's kind of also the counseling piece that um, I also see kind of parallel to this as a therapist when you're meeting a client, their sexuality comes into play, their spirituality comes into play, their family of origin comes into play. There's a whole host of like factors that we take into consideration that make up the person sitting in front of us. And I think that's one of the best ways that I can just like go about life is I'm not holding any one of those areas um, higher than another, for Mm. example, you know, Um, even someone who's been deeply traumatized, for example, you are not just your trauma. Um, you are a bunch of other things and the trauma is a part of your story, but it doesn't mean that you're just this traumatized individual, for example. Um, so I would just say, you know, as I said, love the person and let God do the rest because like, I, I do think sometimes we as Christians think like it's, it's up to us to, um, create sort of this internal change in people that we think should change um but i don't actually believe that that's um totally our responsibility yeah that's kind of where yeah. i'd say well said yeah yeah that's a i think that's a 
good way to end. Uh, Ruth, thanks for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure to have you yes, on thank the you. podcast. Thanks. I enjoyed myself. And you, listener, thank you for joining us in the pew. Uh, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us financially, uh, you can do so on Patreon. Uh, it's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew. Uh, and if you can't support us financially, please give us a good rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, uh, and that will help others find our podcast. Also, please comment and ask questions. You can leave us a short voice message or text message at 312-725-2995. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For Questions from the Pew, I'm Reichert Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.